The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever, interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello, welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, I am joined by Tim Carson, who is the head of the Liminality Project. Oh, I'm sorry, the curator of the Liminality Project. In addition to holding a master's degree in education and a master's degree in theology, his doctoral research and dissertation focused on liminality, which we're going to learn more about And following many years serving as a parish pastor, Tim continues to write, edit, blog, and facilitate groups and seminars focused on liminality and work with people making life's great passages. Tim works with individuals as an EFT practitioner, which is Emotional Freedom Technique, and Matrix Reimprinting Practitioner, which I need to know more about. Hello, do I call you Dr. Tim or Tim? Just call me Tim. Okay. All right, Tim. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure and such a beautiful day, too. Oh, it's a gorgeous <laughs> day here in Kansas City. I hope it is there in, in it, Columbia, too. It is. <laughs> so you're based in Columbia, Missouri, of course, and you are a professor at Missouri State or Missouri right. University? In the, in the Honors College of the University of Missouri. Wonderful. M.U., Right. So within within the university, there's an honors college. So about twenty five hundred students within the whole student body of the thir- of thirty thousand or so. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that is a it's a big university. It is. And you teach liminality. I do. I teach liminality seminars, and one of the one of the courses I'm teaching right now is liminality and literature. And so we're plunging into the many examples of liminality as found in um, very liminal works of literature. And liminality being the place between. The place between, that, right. The way to describe it? Yeah. So um, life is, is constructed of a series of passages. Mm-hmm. And as we cross these many passages, 
the domain that we find on the other side is this uncertain, ambiguous, um, swimmy terrain where we've not been before. It's full of uncertainty, and yet it is full of all kinds of potential. There's much to be discovered there. And so we remake ourselves every time we cross through this domain. And there are as many different kinds of liminality as there are people. There's personal liminality, there's social liminality. Passing through a pandemic is a form of liminality. We uh, used to have what was the structure of life, which was our familiar life. It's what we knew, it was our common life. And then we crossed a certain threshold. And when we crossed the threshold, we entered this whole new unknown territory of pandemic. And it's uh, liminality is such is that, uh, that you don't know what your destination is going to be. Not exactly. You have hopes for what that would be and you discover new things. But what you create on the other side of the liminal passage is going to be different than what you experienced before you crossed into it. And that's good in many respects because we don't wanna just go back to the past the way it was. There's a lot of the bad old world we don't wanna take forward. We wanna recreate it all the time and we wanna recreate ourselves all the time. Right, oh no, that's a wonderful thing. And so um, these these rites of passages, how do you, how do you work with the liminality there and the between places? Well, usually when we talk about rites of passage, those are the, the prescribed rites that cultural groups, religious groups would use to transport people from one state of being to another. And so, you know, the most common one we think of is coming of age rituals in which one moves from childhood to adulthood. And in um, the kind of ancient, uh, agrarian, pre-industrial societies, those were tightly prescribed and ritualized, surrounded by ceremony and tribal elders. And this enabled the, the persons who were making the passage and the tribe itself to make these passages uh, with the greatest safety they could, because liminal passages are always dangerous. There's a kind of death and rebirth that takes place. And as one, as one passes through kind of the birth canal into the next stage of life, things can happen. So um, all of these rites of passage are there to usher a person into that. And so if, if one uh, is, for instance, uh, Roman Catholic, um, the rites of confirmation are going to be uh, very important as one passes into a fully owned faith in adulthood. Uh, or if you're Jewish, a bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs serve the ca- same kind of function. Mm-hmm. And so what do we learn? But by- some of, of course, many of those are not right. Many of them are not strictly rites of passage because they're not planned. And so I'm thinking about the Joplin tornado. Okay. My brother lives in Joplin. And remember when, when that uh, tornado tore through Joplin and just ripped a pathway a mile wide through the entire city. That was not a rites of passage as such because 
There was nothing planned about it, nothing designed to transport one a person from here to there. What it did, though, is everyone crossed the threshold. There was this social trans, the social liminality that took place. And in the middle of all that, people discovered a whole lot of things. They discovered uh, hope. They discovered the bonds of community. They discovered how to rebuild after tragedy. They discovered reserves of strength they didn't know they had. Um, those were not necessarily rites of passage, but all of those things took place in that liminal domain after they crossed that threshold. Right. So the the liminality would be be the journey from the transition period from one to the next. Right. Well, it would be it would be like the pathway that you're walking during the journey. It mm-hmm. would be the the time and place that you have to traverse. It's like making a sea journey and you leave the shore and you're at sea. And so that is the liminality being at sea and you're making this great voyage to wherever you happen to be sailing. And that is the the liminality, along with all of the pleasant breezes and the storms that come in that region and in that time. Right, right. Oh, thank you for the unusual thing about uh, liminal space is that time uh, changes. And so what seemed to be passing along quickly slows down. Sometimes time stops as we're going. Think about the pandemic. Um, Sometimes it seems to absolutely creep along. It's just like this is this indefinite period of time every day stretching on. And then sometimes we kind of wake up and we say, oh, my gosh, where'd the month go? Where did I lose that month? What happened to it? Where did it go? And so time is kind of flexing and, and it, you're, it's very uncertain uh, because all of the old signposts and all the uh, kind of signs of structure we used to know have been erased and they're gone. So that's why it works on people psychologically. That's why that's one of the reasons the pandemic has been so difficult emotionally for people. Mm -hmm. They don't know where they stand and they don't know what time it is. They don't they don't know when they are. It's not only where I am and who I am. It is those questions are real. Who I am, the identity questions are real, but it's also when am I? Mm-hmm. How is time passing? Yeah, I found myself having to rely on looking at my phone or my computer to know what day it was. <laughs> I do. I did that often. I mean, what day is it? I don't know. It seems a lot like yesterday (laughs) and probably like tomorrow. (laughs) Who knows anymore? And so, um, and of course, mm -hmm. we mentioned identity. Right. Um, Identity is a key thing, too. That is the thing that is being remade in the middle of liminality, also. Um, All of the great myths of the world have great passage stories in them. And the hero or the heroine of those great passage stories are being remade. Mm. And so we're being remade as we pass through this. 
Right. And we're, you know, um, oftentimes in the great stories from the great traditions, a person is being stripped of what was. They are being stripped down to their essentials. Yes. And they're rebuilding after that kind of stripping down and discovering what is needed and necessary, abandoning all that is extraneous and unnecessary, letting it go. And sometimes that means relationships. Um, I have I have discovered uh, lots of my acquaintances and friends who have made important personal transitions in the pandemic. Oh, yes. There's been lots of time to think, lots of time to ponder. Who am I? Who do I want to be? Where do I want to go? How much time do I have to do it? Mm-hmm. And so people are, are, are making those shifts, and they're doing it right in the middle of that, or they're preparing to do it. Right. Yes, they are. Um, it's been a big transition for a, a lot of people. And so um, the study of liminality, like why, why study it? What do we have to learn or gain from it? Right. Well, that's a really good question. It's liminality existed long before there were, it was a discipline. I mean, right. it's kind of built into the fabric of existence. Mm-hmm. From, from the most ancient of our texts and literature, we, we just have story after story. So actually, the knowledge of what it is, so that we can describe it with a kind of language, gives us handles uh, every to not only for ourselves, but to help others make those passages every time they come. And they come all the time. And so what we're doing is we're equipping people with a language, it's a language to describe experience. And if you, can, if you can describe your experience, you're halfway there. And one of my, one of my uh, enjoyable experiences that happens all the time is I'll get into a conversation and someone will say, oh, you know, what do you do? What do you teach? Or what do you focus on? What do you write? And I say, well, I, I talk about liminality. And, you know, the same question always, lima what? You know, uh, what's, what's liminality? And so after I give a simple description, the simplest of description, people say inevitably, oh, that I know what you mean because they've experienced it. Of course. They've experienced it in their own life. They've experienced it in their society. Um, every time that, that we play that old game, where were you when, where were you when the Twin Towers fell? Right. Where were you when the Capitol was seized? Where were you when, and people, people know exactly where they were, because every time that someone gives an, uh, a, a reply or an answer to that, they're describing a threshold that ushered us into liminality. Yeah. They know exactly what liminality is. All they need is a language to describe it. Absolutely. Yeah, and there is quite a bit in that in that transition in the in the liminality. And you talked about 
um, teaching literature in liminality and literature. And I'm thinking of Bildungsromans. So the, the novel of the younger person who goes through a bunch of trials and tribulations and they come out on the other side. Right. Uh -huh. So literature mm -hmm. is full of this. So is this the type of thing that you're talking about? Right. In fact, you could say that liminality is what propels literature forward. I would I would agree. Whether it, whether we're talking about the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was just talking about the Odyssey. Or we're talking about the life of Pi. Um, exactly. What, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whether it be ancient or modern, um, that tends to be the engine, that engine of passing the threshold and then being in the horns of the dilemma and trying to figure it out and suffering in the meantime and being remade. That's just this recurring pattern. And it happens in our our psychological, spiritual life too. How so? You, you you can you can think of you can think of the passages that we make on the outside are reflected with an inner passage. So hmm. okay. let's say we had a way that we understood the world to be. That was our preliminal understanding of life. And something comes along. And it disrupts that notion that we have of the world. Some kind of cognitive dissonances is inserted. And suddenly the world that we thought we had, we realize that we don't have anymore. And so we have to make, this is where learning and liminality comes to the fore so powerfully. We have to make an interior shift. And that interior shift means crossing a threshold from what we thought we knew to uncertainty and unknowing to a new kind of knowing. Mm -hmm. So we're kind, of, we're kind of layering that. We move to a new or a different level. So we have these powerful shifts that take place. And sometimes they're autonomous. They're not necessarily related to outside shifts. You could have an interior, like say, uh, the classic midlife passage, you know, midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily based on what's happening outside, though it can be connected to that. But we, in an interior kind of way, come to a moment in our life where we say, you know, um, I have a shelf life. Um, the first half is over. It's half time. Uh, do I want to live the second half like I live my first half? Uh, what kind of shifts or what do I value? Who am I? What do I want to live for? How do I have to remake myself? And so these kind of things are taking place on the inside. And, and the, the best thing we could say when a person comes to those powerful interior shifts where we cross certain thresholds, mm -hmm is that we will go to the deeper places where we have not gone before, or perhaps we have not visited in a long time. And we will try to reconnect with kind of the powerful forces of being down there in the basement of our lives, the deep places. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a bit about the books that you've written, Liminal Reality and Transformational Power. And, uh, well, and you were the editor of the anthology, Neither Here Nor There, The Many Voices of Liminality. And then as right. well as co-author of 
uh, crossing thresholds, a practical theology of liminality. <clears throat> and then the liminal, I mean, do, so you've written several books on this. And so, right, right. Um, yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So uh, one of the earliest books was based on my doctoral dissertation. Uh, that's Liminal Reality and Transformational Power. And that was published in it. And it, it's more in the scholarly vein and people accessed it as they started researching liminality. Um, later, I uh, had a really fun project where I edited, edited the anthology that you mentioned, Neither Here Nor There. And uh, it was great fun to identify and edit the work of 18 authors, international authors, writing from many different points of view. And uh, so that's been a really, really fun project. The um, Crossing Thresholds you mentioned is actually a theological work, and that's a practical theology of liminality. So that would be for more for uh professors, theological students, pastors, chaplains, spiritual directors, kind of in that vein. Mm -hmm. um, and then the one I'm working on right now is kind of kicking all the doors out, and it's called The Liminal Loop, uh, 12 Tales of Transformation. It is an anthology again, and um, I am most excited about anthologies right now, a collection of authors, Right. At this point in my life, because I have a conviction that the truth that we seek can only be known by the contribution of many voices mm -hmm. that circle that issue. Yeah. And it is by combining those many voices that we can touch on the centrality of that common truth that we're trying to get to, whether it be liminality or, or anything and anything else. So that intersectionality uh, that takes place when you have many voices uh, addressing an issue actually creates kind of more knowledge, more wisdom, uh, the kind that you wouldn't have had unless they touched, unless they came together. So it's one of my thrills these days to assemble a group of very diverse people to address something. And since liminality is my thing, I gather them around that. And um, it's, it's fun. <laughs> so that will be, that will be published later this year. It's, it's in process as we're speaking. So yeah, it says uh, here on your website, released in the late fall of 2021. Right. So, you know, true tale, 12 tales of, of transformation, that's got to be pretty hefty. That's got to be pretty wonderful. You know, what I do is all about helping people transform themselves anyway. So, um, you know, transformation is something, you know, and I, I, I agree what you said about it's like the basis of literature, Something, you know, a character's walking along, something happens, and then something comes out of it. So that is basically the, the very definition. And uh, the liminality is starting to really, really, I don't know, it's tying some things together for me. So I've, I appreciate that. And we, live, we live our life in stories. We live our life in narratives. We and do. so that's, liminality is best understood as kind of forms of narratives on the outside, in our social life, in our individual life, and on the inside of us, the kind of stories that we live and the kind of stories we rewrite as a 
as a product of passing through that. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It is, isn't it? Oh, very interesting. Now, so you're also a pastor, I see. Right. So I served for decades as a parish pastor, and I've retired from that now, and and I'm enjoying uh, the dessert after a long uh, mini-course meal by teaching in the Honors College. Um, imagine the, the passage one makes from uh, all of the administrative roles that you might have in a religious community and the teaching roles and counseling roles and everything else you have to do, uh, everything from the, the grand to the petty. And so imagine all of that and um, ending up teaching honors college undergraduates, uh, uh, just uh, helping them traverse through uh, the most interesting intellectual uh, terrain that could be found and watching their bright face selves in, interact with that. Um, this is like, you know, like I said, a rich dessert after a long meal. It's just such a thrill. Oh, I'll such, a thrill. such a thrill. I taught college myself for a few years and it was just, it was just so rewarding and so rich. It's right. certainly not at, your, at the level you're teaching, but it's still, it's a, it's a wonderful life and a great dessert. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you also use EFT, the emotional freedom techniques. How did you get right. into that? Well, a, a long time ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And as we explored for alternative therapies and ways to address her physical uh, life and her emotional life, her spiritual life, we, start, we came upon various forms of energy medicine, yes. energy healing. Yes. And uh, one of those that we discovered was EFT. Uh, so it would be tapping on the, uh, the embedded emotions uh, that we carry in our bodies. So very somatic, very emotion-based, and releasing those. Mm -hmm. And in the release of those, then one find, finding one's emotional freedom and actually the body, kind of as Vanderkuck has said, to, the body tells the score. The way that the body releases all those is connected to our emotional life and how that releases it. And now I just wanted to send a shout out to some of our supporters. Julian, John, James, Marissa, Charlotte, Pauline, Becky, and Louise. Thank you all so much for keeping this podcast going. If you'd like to support this podcast too, please hit the like, follow, or subscribe button. Or give us five stars or a positive review wherever you're listening and share this with your friends. You can also subscribe to Radiate You, our private Facebook group for bonus content, including classes and meditations. Another way to support our podcast is to go to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast and click on the donate now button. However you support us, we greatly appreciate it. And thanks for listening. And so as we discovered that, I thought it was really powerful. And so I uh, pursued it myself. And so I spent the years uh, necessary in training and supervision to become a certified practitioner 
of emotional freedom techniques, EFT. And so I, I, I really connected that, joined that with a lot of other modalities, pretty eclectic in my approach to working with people. And that was one that I ended up using a, a lot. And then matrix re-imprinting along with it. What the heck is that? <laughs> okay, so um, we it's interesting we're talking about stories, right? We're right. talking about narratives. The matrix re-imprinting is a method that we help people go into the deep memories of their psyche mm -hmm. and we go to very particular places where trauma may have occurred Right. or some terrible crisis emerged and it is still haunting them but it's still acting it's still contributing to their duress and we go into the scene and through a, a, a set of different kinds of techniques help the person interact with the characters in that scene uh, often in ways they could not when they were younger with the understanding that um, we actually can go into the past and if not modifying historical events, we can modify the way that we interact with the characters in our memory and ourselves. Mm. And as we do that, um, people themselves discover what they need, the resources that they need in those deep places. Mm -hmm. And so often um, we can use the imagination. And if there is, let's say, a young person that has had a terrible conflict with a parent, for example, mm -hmm. um, or two, two of the parents, you can freeze them in the scene so that they feel safe. You can create plexiglass between them and the parents. And you can say something like this, uh, because uh, the ego self, that would be the, the, the uh, present aged adult who is doing this work, goes in and interacts with their own child. Yeah. We call the echo, which would be the energetic self. Mm -hmm. And so they would be interacting with, like I would be talking to my younger self because I become ultimately the, the shaman, the counselor, or the priest that is going to help my own younger self heal. And so everything that is needed is already there. And so I, I anyone who does matrix work would ask a question like, what do you need us to bring into the picture right now? Mm -hmm. And we would ask the echo, that is the energetic younger self, what do you need right now? Mm -hmm. And we actually listen to the echo. Mm -hmm. So the older ego self listens and the younger energetic self always provides the answer. I've never not had that. And they'll say, I need to have my grandmother come in and sit on the bed beside me. No problem let's bring grandma in right now. And then we ask, is she there yet? Yes, she's there. Where is she? She's on the bed beside me. What would you like right now? I'd like to sit in her lap. Go ahead and get in her lap. Then after a while, we'd say, what do you want to say to grandma? 
And the echo, the younger self would say, I don't want to say anything. I just want to listen to her heartbeat. Okay, let's just listen to her heartbeat right now. So all of this is provided. And sometimes people will bring in angels and sometimes superheroes and sometimes uh, Jesus and uh, sometimes uh, their deceased parent. Right. Um, I just, you know, all I need is my mom. Oh, well, we can arrange that. Let's, let's find the most beautiful place in your memory that you've ever been. Where is that? Describe it to me. Oh, it's on the shores of a lake with blowing grasses. And, and I had some beautiful memories. Well, let's go there because I think that we can, your mother can meet you there. And so we go there and we wait. And pretty soon mom comes along whole, restored, renewed, healthy. And there is this encounter between the one that we lost and missed so much and need so much coming and being reunited. Mm. And so there is this healing moment in this beautiful place. And then a person can leave that place knowing they can go back anytime. And they have equipped themselves on the inside. So this is the most liminal of interior spaces. Mm -hmm. This is the liminal interior space of the psyche itself. This is where one go to, goes to commune with the spirit, with the deepest things of life, the things that have mattered most to us, our loves and our losses. And that's where we go to find what we need. And then we can come up and out of the matrix, this special place within our psyche, to our ordinary present day uh, time and space experience, renewed, made new. We've passed through, we've received what we need, and then we become a new person. It's kind of a, it's kind of a death and a resurrection that right. takes place. It's a pattern of that or a model of that. Mm -hmm. Is this a form of hypnosis? It's not, it's not technically hypnosis, right. but I would have to say there are hypnotic elements to it. I think there are hypnotic elements to EFT and the tapping as well because of the, the sheer use of rhythm on the meridian points in the body. There's a kind of hypnotic effect. And in fact, that is one of the reasons that uh, difficult emotions can be surfaced more quickly and more easily because there is this kind of repetitive rhythmic tapping that's on the meridians. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds very much like uh, much of the work that I do as a hypnotherapist. And so, so how would you start with getting one into the hypnotic state in your practice? By visualizing, by imagery, right? Getting into the right side of the brain. Yes. Right? And getting the, the person to relax through imagery and describing a beautiful place. As a matter right. of fact. And, this uh, sounds very parallel. Very parallel, right? <laughs> That's right. And it's incredibly healing. Because yes. the mind can create anything. Right. And some, some of the deepest um, experiences of the traditional spiritualities have used these same techniques like over the centuries the visualization of deep stories mm 
Yes. Taking a journey, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that kind of thing is really common. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, it is. Absolutely. Visualization is so key. Olympic athletes and professional athletes use visualization to create the outcome. Right. 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 So I understand why you got into EFT through your wife's illness. How did you discover and get into this matrix repatterning? Um, I had a friend who was an EFT practitioner who uh, used matrix and told me about upcoming trainings. And I didn't know much about it at the time, but I explored it and I thought, yeah, I want to do that. And so I just went ahead and pursued that as well. And I have used that a lot. Um, have you really? Yes, I have. I've used that a lot. And it it has become kind of the quick down and dirty way to get to the deepest issues quickly. Yes. I agree. It often works when nothing else does. <laughs> and it's and it's one of the uh it's one of the reasons that people uh, refer to me because they've heard about it and they might be working with a client and uh, they kind of get stuck. They kind of feel like they're in a plateau and they'll refer a person to me for a few sessions or more just to kind of move to the next level. And then they might return to whatever their therapy was they were using mm -hmm. um, after we do that work. Oh, absolutely. And I've also, I've also worked conjointly with therapists. So, two of us working with one client sometimes uh, back before the pandemic in the same room working together. Um, yeah. Right. And so, and let me bring this up or let's bring this up is that not only are you a professor and um, a, an expert in the subject of liminality, you're also a practitioner. I am. Yeah. And I, I do that every week. So I, I will um, always have between uh, four to five clients a week, mm -hmm. which is just, just about what I want right now with everything else I'm doing. And I basically just take people only by referral now sure. uh, from, sure. from other people. And that's, it works just about right for me now. Is that more of the, with the matrix work or is it more with the EFT work? It's, it's both. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's both. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And you've got, an, there's an amazing practice there in Colombia. Yes. Tell us about <laughs> the, this practice that you're with. So that's Kindred Collective. Mm -hmm. um, Kindred's a, a remarkable creation it is, a, um, it is a gathering of a variety of therapists and practitioners in the healing arts uh, under the umbrella of the collective. And we, um, each, each person is, is, is independent and autonomous within the practice. They manage their own caseloads. We have sh a space sharing arrangement uh, when we uh, are using bricks and mortar, we're returning to more of that now. And yet we collaborate on a number of things. Uh, I know that there in the collective, there are people that do body work 
mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I don't. And uh, that, you know, do therapeutic massage and all this kind of thing, who, who work uh, specifically with conjoint family therapy, things that I don't do. Um, so it's wonderful to have a community of people that you're with that you that you feel so fortunate to be able to refer, cross-refer to. And you can cover for each other, like if people yeah. are gone for vacations. I'm, I, I took a client from one of my kindred colleagues for just three weeks or so uh, while my, my colleague was gone and just kind of covered uh, with the understanding that the client would return to my colleague when she returned. And that's, that's always so nice. That does sound quite wonderful. It's the, the, the hallmark of kindred in Colombia is child play therapy. So it's very, a lot of child therapies. So there are a lot of uh, trained, licensed child therapists there, but not only that, they work, also work with adults and adolescents. And Yes, in fact, Kate Weir from The Collective is going to be on the podcast as well. <clears throat> I am so glad because uh, she was the founder. This is... This is Kate's brainchild. Right. This is this is her dream baby. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to talk about play and the importance of play, and uh, I'm just no. excited. Yes. No. This. this she's she's actually she's actually going to be writing one of the chapters of the liminal loop for me. Oh. And she's going to be write about liminality and play therapy. Mm-hmm. which is an fascinating so she's uh, which is a model that is it's just hand in glove because the the consulting room the child ther- uh, play therapy room is the liminal domain and the therapist is the liminal guide on the inside of that liminal container and so she's that's what her chapter is going to be about that's wonderful so needed and of course, the childhood childhood is perhaps the ultimate liminal state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It is. <laughs> so much of who we are is formed in that way. Mm-hmm. And here in Kansas City, I share an office suite with a child therapist as well. Ah, uh, so, okay, okay. Yes. So um, you know, just understanding these these different passages, teen the teenage years, another. Right. Trope of liminality. Right. At Kindred, I'm kind of the one who people turn to to do a lot of the, the pre-adolescent and adolescent males. I, t- I tend to work more with them, mm-hmm. not only, but more. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, I think because of life passages. It is a clear, distinct passage. And... Um, Sometimes, if if I could speak in mythological terms, and if, if I could speak in rites of rites of passage terms, mm-hmm. um, the rites of passage for young males, not always, not exclusively, but a lot of the time, has to do with a passage and re-identification with a kind of rising male energy in adolescence. Mm-hmm. 
A lot of it has to do with hormonal change. A lot of it has to do with identity shifts. Um, uh, we, we can't be too absolute because people are always unique, but a lot of it has to do with that. And so to have a mentor slash liminal guide who is kind of walking alongside that rites of passage mm-hmm. is an important one. And it parallels the kind of rites of passage that took place in pre-agrarian, pre-industrial societies. But in our modern society, we don't have a whole lot of equivalents for that. Right, right. We do. A lot of times we, we have lost a lot of that kind of identification and, and kind of accompaniment during that kind of passage. So it, it ends up being done in therapeutic veins sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes we just need to have a Sherpa or a guide. Exactly. <laughs> I like the Sherpa. That is really good. <laughs> That's right. And help us schlep our stuff. That's right. And <laughs> get up that mountain. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I was just thinking about how um, how the role of someone, maybe not being a guide, but a role model, someone who's been through that passage before right How important would that be that's right i think that that really helps on the other side of that um I, i'm always amazed that regardless of your gender regardless of your age if you are the right guide and you are chosen by the one needing the guide and the match is right Great healing and passage can take place regardless. I'm thinking right now of a person I have worked with for about a year who is a trans person who's transitioned from, uh, well, she's actually, this person is gender fluid and has transitioned kind of from woman to the person that she is. Mm-hmm. She's lesbian, and I'm a straight cis. I'm a cisgender straight male, yeah. and you would think that I wouldn't have anything to offer to a person like this, except mm-hmm. that I have spent time accompanying other persons making similar journeys. Right. Um, my personal experience does not parallel that, except that I'm a human being, except I know something about sexual identity and sexual tension and identification and gender roles. Mm -hmm. And I know something about making great big passages. And I know something about feeling like I'm not at one in my own skin for a variety of reasons. So there's enough enough parallel there for identification. You wouldn't think, though, that I'd be the person. In fact, I didn't think I'd be the person. It's like, why does this work? I don't even know why this works. Right. You know? But if if it's the right kind of spiritual, emotional match, if the attitudes, the the mutual respect is in the right place, then magic, magic can happen. Mm-hmm. The trust. And trust. Rapport. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. No, that's a really good point. I mean, there are uh, not just the, the 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 usual transitions that we have, but those who are wanting to identify with a new role and a new gender and step into a new sexuality. That's huge. It's and a remarkably powerful passage. And it is like we've been talking about, and in all the classic literature, it's fraught with a certain kind of danger when you make those kind of passages. Absolutely. There's a social, there's a social danger. There's an emotional risk that takes place. And it can be shattering and it can be life-giving and uh, terrifying and all those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of Queer Eye. <laughs> The show. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and there was one episode where they helped um, a trans man to just fully blossom into who he was meant to be and having the driver's license being a huge thing and having that right. match his identity. Exactly. His markers as well. Mm-hmm. And just this little card made all the difference. Right. Right. We, we live in this heteronormative culture, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to negotiate that culture if you're not part of that main, mainstream. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know children who are fluid, I think you could say. Yeah, right. fluid and gender fluid, preference fluid, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's hard. It's not easy on them. But you know, we come to we come to the world at a time right. where this is more and more accepted, and this is more more and more becoming um, normal and being normalized. So mm-hmm. it's wonderful that you get to right. help people move through that with uh, the work that you do. That is fantastic. Yeah, um, and so. I would like to point our listeners to your website, which is the theliminalityproject.org, theliminalityproject.org. What all do you have on that site? Well, there are several things. There's a, there is a general description of what liminality is called the liminality primer. Yep. Um, that's, that's a nice one. That will give you the down and dirty. It'll give you the historical backgrounds and definitions. Yeah. There's a, a blog, mm-hmm. uh, and that has a whole variety of people that have contributed over time, writings to that. There's a resources page, mm-hmm. which has a variety of videos and other materials on there. Uh, so it's it's just kind of a meeting place for people interested in liminality and always a way to contact the curator with questions or uh, if someone would like to contribute something. Um, there's there's ways to do that too. Oh, that's wonderful. And I love how on your website you've got this beautiful spiral staircase going down. Another <laughs> another, another liminal symbol. Exactly. Exactly. Another symbol of you know moving from one place to another and the between place. Now oh, that's wonderful. Anything that you'd like to leave us with? Anything that you feel like we haven't covered, it hasn't been said. Um, I, I think that, um, 
we need to leave people with a sense of hope. And I firmly believe that um, no, no matter how difficult the passage is, whether it be an interior passage or exterior passage, whether it's one that's been chosen, a pathway that's chosen, or you were pushed into it um, through no choice of your own, there are riches to be found in that uh, dark interval. And take patience and courage uh, to find what that is for you, because it will be important, something that you didn't even know that you needed, that you found. Mm, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And just like a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, there's that point there where everything becomes goo. <laughs> right, right. And what is it? <laughs> what is it then? <laughs> <laughs> that everything you thought you were has to dissolve before it can reemerge. Right. And and does does the caterpillar know that it's becoming a butterfly? No, it doesn't. Mm-mm. It's just in the goo, right? <laughs> we don't we don't really know what we're becoming either. Not exactly. No. But we are. Right. And we never stop becoming that. Right. Right. So perhaps in that way, our entire life is liminality. A large arc. A liminal arc. Right. Liminal arc. I like that. Yeah. From non-physical energy to physical energy, back to non-physical energy. Yes. (laughs) And we're in that place between. Right. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Thank you for sitting and talking with me. It's been a great pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.